Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start much-needed conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have an atta and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this episode is an absolutely fantastic lad and someone I'm so excited to have on. William Jones Warner is an immunologist and a photographer currently living in London. He is also the mutual friend of friend of the pod Dan Agnew and the reason why I'm checking in with him today. Will's passion is in photography and lies largely in the outdoors, travel and wildlife. He has produced images for a number of large outdoor brands such as Arcteryx UK, Sun God and Lind Verdelin and also done collaborations with athletes in the outdoor sphere. He is also currently working on a special personal project where he is capturing his loved ones and close friends which we discuss in the podcast. In this episode, we also discuss how he got into photography and why he loves it, how photography helps keep his mental health balanced, taught him patience, persistence, and is a useful meditative tool for him too. Will was obsessed with early wildlife documentaries as a child and wanted to be a wildlife cameraman when he was in school, and we discuss how a dismissive comment from a teacher at a parent's evening tried to derail that dream. We also discuss his move to London for work, managing the ups and downs that come with living in the capital, and life generally as well. So this is how my check-in with the brilliant William Jones Warner went. Will, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. I've been so excited to do this pod since I basically floated this idea to you on a whim when we were at a friend of the pod, Dan Agnew's birthday. This is my first weekday evening pod for a very long time, so I hope you feel very privileged that I've made the time and effort for you uh, here. Yeah. How are you, mate? I'm very good, thank you. Excited to be here. A little bit nervous, but uh, hopefully well subsided. We'll warm up, mate. We're warming yeah, to yeah. yeah. I had question ideas basically coming out of my ears when we had that chat off air, and there's so many things I want to explore here because I've not interviewed too many photographers. I've interviewed a couple, but with your specific line of work, I'm really excited for it and take a bit of a nostalgic trip down memory lane with some of the things I used to watch as a kid on nature. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, I am. Thank you. Your main love is photography, mate. So I want to start the pod by talking about this journey. So tell me how and why you got into it, because I believe it started with you watching nature documentaries on VHS. The kids might not know what VHS is if they're listening. Around your nan's house with a, with a certain Mr. Attenborough, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So I used to go over to my grandparents' house quite a lot as a kid. And my grandma had this set of David Attenborough VHS videos. And I used to just watch them on repeat. So it was like Grasslands. Uh, Blue Planet? Yeah. Oh. Uh, no, Life, Life. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I think the original Life. And I used to love it. Just watch it on repeat constantly. And yeah, from then, I really just wanted to be a wildlife cameraman. That was it. Yeah, yeah. Life set, you know, biology at university, all that stuff. And was that childhood memory quite a fond way of linking your soon-to-be passion with your family as as well as strengthening that bond with your nan and granddad, I imagine, right from the start. 
yeah, of course, a hundred percent. It's quite interesting as well because as I started to, you know, want to be a wildlife cameraman, as I sort of childishly said. It was actually my grandma that gave me the money to buy my first camera. So, you know, I've always had that sort of connection with her on it. And every time I do pick up the camera, I think about this, think about going taking pictures, I think of her and, you know, the opportunity she gave me. So I appreciate that. And yeah, I don't know if I would have ever got into photography had she not bought Mm. that first camera. Let's move on to school and college. And when you did pick up that camera and you started crystallising this desire in your head, mate, because... On the flip side of this, there was a very important moment at a parents' evening <laughs> where you got a particular comment from a maybe not-so-supportive teacher. Tell the listeners about that. Yeah, so I, of course, loved biology. I did biology at GCC, so the split sciences, and then went on to college where I chose to do biology A-level. And this was all because I wanted to be a wildlife cameraman. Like, it keeps going back to this. This was the aim in life. And I wasn't particularly good at college. I, you know, I'd bunk a lot of lessons. I was on report a fair amount. But this is like very much in the lessons I didn't enjoy so much, like chemistry <laughs> I didn't do so well in. I think I had like 60% attendance. But then like maths and art and like biology was up at like 90, 95%. I didn't have the best rapport with some of the teachers. So, you know, I turn up to a parents' evening one day and my uh, biology teacher turns to me and says, what do you want to do in life? And I said, I really want to be a wildlife cameraman, literally those words. And he, he just turned around and was like, oh, you know, that's not going to happen. I think you should really consider another career choice. And, you know, that's a real slap in the face when you have a, a teacher tell you that. So it's not it's not exactly pleasant. And you just want to, well, you don't know what to think. It's like a 16-year-old, kind of a bit pissed off and you want to show them a bit. So what did I do? I just, you know, cracked on as I was. And it did make me think, like, how, how do I reach this end goal? Do I go on and become go into media or, or do I actually just persevere with biology? And actually, it was at that point I realised that the vast majority of these people, you know, you have, a, you have a mix. Those who go straight into media and those who are specialists in the sciences and then move into it. And I decided that's probably got the biggest safety net because I had this guy's words ringing in my head. You know, if I can't become it, you know, might as well go do science doing something else. What I want to know is, why did that teacher feel with such certainty that you couldn't do it? Was it because he genuinely didn't like you, mate? Or why did he need to be so cruel as to dismiss it rather than say, okay, well, here's what you need to do, get the grades, this is what you need to do, etc., etc.? I don't actually know. I was always quite a loud pupil. Same. (laughs) It it wasn't that I always spoke the most. It was always that everyone could hear me when I did speak. (laughs) Exactly. So I'd get told off of that. And I think he probably just thought I was distracting for the entire class. Maybe I wasn't putting the effort in. You know, I got so a the D. the kind of influence in The Simpsons when he gets out that, yeah. that parents' evening with Bar. And it's like, Tony, put it away, put it away. Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. It's exactly that. And getting a D first time around in biology, you know, it doesn't exactly solidify a teacher's prospects in, in a child, does it? So mm. I want to fast forward to university now, because this is where you first got into photography, I would say, properly. So tell me about the time when it became truly a hobby and when you thought, actually, maybe I can make perhaps not a career yet out of this, but at least a side hustle. Yeah, so it was actually, it was during university that my idea shifted. So I didn't choose zoology at undergraduate, which possibly could have been better for going into wildlife cameraman. You know, the thought was I'd probably end up getting a camera at some point, but the thought actually at that point shifted to maybe I should get a job which can earn some money. So I did straight biology, so I kept my options open and then started shifting towards like infectious disease, which which I now work in. But bringing back to photography, I was always quite 
quite enjoyed taking images. I, I, I'd always have, always wanted to have an iPhone because the camera was better than the, the competitors at that point. It always took nicer images. So, you know, I was posting on Instagram, doing all the nice filters, all that fancy stuff. Back when Instagram wasn't what it is now, actually. Yeah, it, yeah exactly, what exactly. Kim, Kim K and Kylie are protesting about. Yeah. Bring well, back Instagram. It was exactly that. <laughs> Awful filters and, uh, you know, whatever. So then I'd build my little fixies and make them arty and take arty pictures and whatever. But I never actually made that jump to a full-blown camera. And while, you know, I got out, I finished my undergraduate having done a uh, placement in the Netherlands where I worked in infection and disease lab, immunology. Loved it. was like, this is where I want to go. But it was that summer when I finished university that I was like, shit, I haven't done anything towards becoming a wildlife cameraman other than get an <laughs> undergraduate degree. That's what happens with being you go to the Netherlands abroad for a year, mate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but the other option was to go to Borneo and work in the um, Danny Garang Field Centre and work with orangutans. Oh, wow. And I didn't do that because of funding. And I was like, where can I go? Okay, Netherlands, they speak English, blah, 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 blah. And actually, this loops back to a bit later in the story. So that was when my grandma gave me this money to buy a camera. And I, you know, I bought one which could do video and photos. And I just went out into literally into the fields and stuff and it was like a 22 23 year old just taking as many photos as i could of animals learning the field craft learning how to do all this stuff learning the lighting and i found it really rewarding and initially i convinced myself and tried to convince others you know i was taking photos because i don't know i perceived it as like slightly uncool when i first went into it why is that I don't know. I don't know why. It was always a bit of a weird one. And funnily enough, I actually lost it at my brother one day because, you know, I was taking photos. Also, if you're not taking good photos, what's the point of having a camera? So I wasn't <laughs> taking good photos at the start. It's a learning process. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's a really steep learning process. And you always want to be progressing faster than you should be. So you kick yourself for that. But yeah, no, it is a learning process. You have to remind yourself that always trying to learn new techniques and so on. And I was at a family event and my brother made a joke about me being a photographer and I just lost it. Because <laughs> I was like, I'd been trying to keep it secret until I was like taking good enough photos that I could confidently mm. say I could take photos, which is now ridiculous when I look back on it. Now I've got, a, well, I got lost down this like rabbit hole of stuff. So I'm thinking... So then, yeah, I was literally just going into the woods and stuff at every opportunity, taking photos. And that's when I moved to London after that summer. And I spent most of my time, most of my free time in Richmond Park taking photos of a deer. While that didn't necessarily build up fieldcraft and stuff, I sort of completely forgot about being a wildlife cameraman and thought about just focusing on photography. Mm. And you know, I was working in a job which wasn't necessarily offering the fulfillment I wanted. Again, it was one of those choices where... which you know i think built upon what i decided at university i'd go for money rather than life fulfillment uh, so i scrapped the wildlife cameraman aspect of it and actually i was working this job spending most of my time in richmond park taking pictures of deer taking nice images bloody bloody blah, blah and realized actually photography is far more fulfilling than this job i thought would be a great career which offered me money job stability good career progression so funny enough i then did a master's in immunology at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine which I, where I currently work on the basis that I enjoyed immunology and it would give me the free time to pursue photography which is mental when you think about that sort of career decision to do that and then end of my masters and correct me if I've gone off track no there, no, no but, keep going um, so I was spending again I got I got into the habit of bunking lessons to spend sunrises and sunsets in Richmond Park taking pictures going out trying to find foxes in the garden there's one there just outside my garden exactly. I just missed it oh, <laughs> the listeners can't see but a fox literally just ran past my that flat that will literally I'll be here 
over here taking photos. Now I know the location. <laughs> You'll see me outside with the sausages <laughs> and my camera. Oh, that's uh, really exciting. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I was photographing urban foxes in the garden, literally like what just happened, spending time in Richmond Park. And every time I could, I'd go back to Titchester and photograph the roe deer, you know, whatever I could find. Working on field craft, lighting, like soaking up all the information I could on photography because I found it literally so fulfilling. It was mm. literally a drug. And my master's, you know, I enjoyed it, but it was kind of getting forgotten. And I still did it, still completed it, and thought, you know, sod this, I don't want to go back to working an unfulfilled job nine to five where I don't have time to go do my photography. And at this point, you know, I was two years into taking photos. I'd had some success in photography competitions at the British Wildlife Photography Awards, not the international one, which you see at the National History Museum, the, the sort of British one. And I thought, God, actually, this is fantastic. I can start maybe doing something a bit more with this so then I was like yeah of course I didn't want to go back to this unfulfilling job which you know made me miserable I mean my only outlet was photography I thought sod this I'll try and carry on working in this sector you know I love the work I love coming to work and then I also love doing photography and during my master's my supervisor gave me this fantastic opportunity to go to the Philippines for seven weeks and actually this I think was revolutionary so before my master's I'd never been outside of Europe I was very closed off I was very you know, British focused, you know, I always thought Britain was the best, even my year in the Netherlands working my uh, Erasmus year, I was still like, uh, Britain's the best country. This seven weeks abroad in the Philippines, like completely changed my mindset. I was out there working on infectious diseases, I was working on uh, looking at dengue, the Philippines reference laboratory for uh, tropical medicine, uh, ITM. And I loved the culture, I loved the people, I loved the adventure, I loved my job. And suddenly I had this like click moment where I was actually, you know, I love wildlife photography, I really do, and I do a lot of it. Now I find it very much sort of, sort of artistic outlook. And, we, you know, I still pursue it, as you've seen with the pony photos I've been taking recently, which I, I could talk about in a bit. And it changed my outlook. I've been reading a lot of National Geographic, and I was like, wildlife cameraman, long forgotten. I want to be a National Geographic photographer. I love my job. I love taking photos. I love traveling the world. And I'm working in, like, an infectious disease setting, which actually I've been thinking about in the last few weeks, is a massive niche which it hasn't, you know, we talk about COVID, COVID has been covered a lot, but the other diseases, malaria, dengue, Zika, tuberculosis, they're not covered in the spotlight yet. These are some of the biggest killers in the world. So I think it clicked then and I realised I had to start merging photography with my career. So that's really the train I've been going on. I, I've been working this job. I thought, okay, I need to stick into this job. I'll try and get a PhD in it as well. Because then, I, you know, looking back at it through National Geographic, which is really one of my big reference points, all the photographers, all the reporters, either scientists or associated with scientists. And I was like, I'm actually in this lucky position where I'm taking photos and... You fit the bill. Well, <laughs> you know, I hope fingers crossed at some point, maybe. I want to talk about a little bit more the essence of photography because you spoke a little bit about it there, Will. And you said to me off air that you see or saw initially photographs as things that can take you into another world. So unpack yeah. that for me. Yeah, and funnily enough, this is really through Instagram again. Like this was the main way I was like taking in photos, excluding National Geographic. You'd be scrolling on Instagram and this was sort of before I'd even got a camera and this was one of the, the big sort of deciding factors like getting a camera as well was you'd see these fantastic pictures of landscapes people and you're just like I want to be experiencing that I want to be there where the camera is experiencing that situation whether it's like these amazing mountains incredible sort of indigenous 
cultures from around the world. And I loved it. And I, it made me really think, like, why the hell am I here not experiencing this? So, yeah, so that was actually one of the big trigger points for getting a camera was, and I think this goes back to something I said earlier, is it was a fantastic excuse to be outside. If you just go for a walk on your own, you're a bit weird. If you have a dog, it's fine. But, like, as a young man in the, in the bushes and the fields and stuff, it's a bit weird if you're on your own. But suddenly you have a camera. It's a perfect excuse. People suddenly know why you're there. You're taking pictures of these fantastic places. Don't go to a school. <laughs> yeah. Don't go to a school with a I camera. Get, I get those jokes. We actually live opposite a school. And I just get those jokes the whole time. Damn. That was an original joke. There we go. I want to talk about and go back to, if we can, those first few months you spent in Richmond Park getting those pictures of the deer. Because what traits did it teach you as a photographer? What skills did you gain? Because obviously they say in well, the, the common parlance is don't work with kids or animals in television. What did it teach you about getting those shots as a photographer? Yeah, it was a lot of trial and error. You'd see Richmond Park as a location to go get photos. You'd see the deer. You'd take a picture. I couldn't understand in those early days why my photos didn't look like these fantastic images I had. I was seeing people take. And really, that was part of a steep learning curve. But really, I think it wasn't so much the deer in Richmond Park which taught me the most. It was the deer at home in the fields in the South Downs. You go into the setting, and there's only so many deer in so many fields. So you have to find a good location, find you know a willing subject. And it's just patience. You know, If you go chasing a deer, wild deer, it's going to clear off. It's not going to hang around. So you've got to try and coordinate all these aspects. You've got to find a potential location where the subject will walk past. And it's also got to be a nice setting. And then you've got to get it at the right time so you have a nice light. So it's trying to balance all these things. And it's patience and perseverance, really. It's trial and error. You've got to find a nice setting. You know, you can wait there for days and nothing will turn up. And that's because mm. it might be a nice setting, but the wildlife don't like it. So then you have to start again and find somewhere potentially where the wildlife are, which then you can frame a shot up. Mm. And then you can get that shot. And then suddenly you're like, well, it'll get to sunset and you'll notice that the light's not falling on that spot. Mm. You know, that's a kick in the teeth, particularly if you've spend, been spending a couple of weeks trying to sort it. You did spend a couple of weeks once trying to get a shot, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, so this is it. So every year you get bluebell season and, you know, it lasts about two, three weeks. Three weeks if you're lucky, two weeks properly. And only really maybe a week when they're in full bloom. And for the last couple of years, I'd really wanted to get a picture of a roe deer and the bluebells. And... You know, it's not easy. You have to find a location with the right light and with a high enough density of deer that one's going to walk through your shot in exactly the spot you want it to. So I'd spent weeks rushing around the fields, the, you know, the woods at home trying to find a spot. Ended up going back to my local location where there was just enough bluebells that if you could get to a certain level, it would look like a blue carpet. So you can use, you know, depth of field in the camera and perspective to flatten off part of a you know you call it bokeh i filled that with the bluebell so you have you know blue at the bottom trees at the top and i found a spot where the fall off the, the distance behind where i'd like the subject to be and you know the trees at the background was right you know i found a tree i could sit against and i waited there in exactly the same spot for two weeks every morning so every sunrise every sunset and if this was when sunrise was like 5 30 5 a.m and, you know, sunset would be like nine or ten or, you know, about that. So I was only going to get getting about four hours sleep a night because, you know, I was working during the day and I was getting exhausted. And after two weeks, you start to lose patience. But I knew I had the potential. I'd photographed deer in this spot before. 
the blue pearls were still there and I wanted this image. If I gave up, I wouldn't forgive myself. And eventually after two weeks, this beautiful roebuck walked into frame and walked straight up this alley of trees. And I just sat there just hammering the shutter button, like absolutely torturing my camera trying to get this photo and it was walking towards me closely closer looking at me and oh my god I was shaking you know I couldn't feel my feet 10 minutes earlier I was going to give up and then the, the light just happened to break through and you know I was just alive like oh my god I couldn't believe it and it kept walking towards me until suddenly got so close that actually my camera couldn't focus and then my camera decided to start having issues and all this stuff. But I got the image and I was so happy. You know, it really showed that, you know, two weeks of perseverance, hell of a lot of patience and just love of the game really just kept me going. And, you know, I've got a photo I'm particularly, particularly happy with. And it might not be my greatest photo or the one which has got the most likes or whatever, you, you, how you ever you rate a photo. But like for me, it was the most satisfying, definitely. Mm. When it comes to people, there's a common saying that, a photograph is the window into the soul. How true is that for you? I think you can definitely tell a lot from someone from a photo. And I actually think photographing people are, or at least for me, is one of the hardest things. And it's exactly that. Is it a window? It's exactly the purpose that you can, you know, we're all humans. You read someone's emotions the moment you see them. And this is what makes photographing people so tough because it's got to be sincere. And this is something I'm, historically I've really struggled with. You know, spending my first four years just photographing wildlife, they don't pull expressions. They literally just sit there. They either, they either run away or they don't. And you just have to hope they get into the right spot. Humans, you could argue it's easy. You put them in the right spot. You tell them what to do, as we just did before the yes, podcast. I sat you down and took your portrait. I had portrait. a mini photo shoot, mate. Yeah, exactly. And I went for my close-up, Mrs. DeVille. <laughs> <laughs> But the hardest bit is suddenly you, you see their nerves, you see where the eyes are looking, you see the concern on their face. And you really have to get comfortable with someone or have them be comfortable, take that photo. So whether it's a window into the soul or not, it's definitely, uh, definitely an insight into that person's character, I think. And you know, this is something I'm trying to learn. And I, I think I mentioned to you before, you know, I'm going around photographing all my friends uh, and, and something that matters to them friends or people important in my life and then trying to include something which is important to their life in the, in the little photos I take of them to get better at this to show a bit of that character to show that human element of the person rather than just you know a person when it comes to you though are your pictures a way of people seeing into your soul yeah interesting I think if you look at all the photos I've taken or at least all the ones I've put out there I think you'd see a pretty eclectic mix of styles and subjects. And I think that definitely sums me up as someone who's a bit all over the place in the way <laughs> in they, the best way. <laughs> in the best way. In the way they think and in what I want and all that stuff. And I think with photography you definitely you definitely create a style over time. And sometimes, you know, you can look at your own photos. I don't know if, if you're into photos you you'll understand this, that you start going down like this line of taking images you like to take. And you don't realise you're doing it until you compare it to someone completely different. So certainly, I think my photos are an insight into who I am, into a bit of my character. And I think, yeah, yeah, definitely it's an insight into who mm. I am. I think so, mate. And as a self-care tool, or just as a mental tool itself, is it escapism? 
Is it distraction? Is it both? Or is it something completely different? You, you can certainly use it as escapism. If you set out into the mountains or into the fields or, you know, you're on the hunt for a certain animal to take its photo, all your focus is on that. Particularly if you're out in the British countryside, I'd say, I think you're trying to photograph an animal which doesn't want to get anywhere near you. Mm. You know, they've learned over thousands of years to avoid you like the plague. And your focus has to be complete to get there, to get the photo. How do you create that? How do you train yourself to have that focus? Do you know, it's, it's, do you know, trial it's, and error? It's trial and error. Yeah. You, you mess up so many times, you kick yourself so many times. You know that if you did something right or changed the way you approach the animal or changed the way you approach the situation, you could have got that photo. And this just comes from... You know, I, I'm incredibly impatient when it comes to wildlife photography. I'm impatient in general, to be fair. So I could be a photographer. <laughs> well, maybe just change the subject. Maybe like sports <laughs> photography would be further. You know, I'd always try and push that extra step. You know, I'd break a twig or rustle a leaf or like, you know, I'd step out into a circulating wind current, which deer, you know, deer are going to smell you. They smell you like wind, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I played Red Dead Redemption. <laughs> <laughs> I played Last of Us. I, I know the, I know the tricks. <laughs> I, I, do you know what? I t- I've been out, I've been out after a fish and chips one day. Photograph. Don't mention deer. fish and chips in this flat, man. Get it every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, I feel sorry for the deer. But yeah, no. So it's just perseverance, and like then it's escapism because you are so focused on it. You have to be, otherwise you're not going to get anything. But then again, at the same time, you know, I've gone on the hunt. I've done the complete opposite. If I know a location well enough, which, you know, to get good wildlife photos, you really, I think, do have to know a location inside out. You can locate yourself, put yourself into a situation where you've got a good field of view, you've got the image set up, and all you need is a subject to walk through it. And you can sit there. And sometimes I've gone into, like, the fields, and I've sat there with a beer, because this is a great way of not fidgeting. You drink a beer, and then you know, you zone out and you wait for the subject to come. I sat there and you just daydream until it comes. And that's really nice as well because you can't do anything. You're forced to completely sit still and just enjoy the, enjoy the environment. Because if you start fidgeting, moving, the deer will hear you. The fox, fox certainly won't turn up if it's, a, if it's a country fox. The hares are quite scatty as well. So you just have to, you just have to sit there and do nothing. And that's really relaxing. Mm. Have you ever had creative or artistic block when it comes to photography and if so how have you managed it or overcome it yeah oh actually i'm getting through a bit of creative block at the moment oh Um, no you know i like to jump into or do all sorts of types of photography you know wildlife is my big one i absolutely adore it although i haven't had a chance to indulge in it so much recently actually i've got artistic block in two parts oh god i know it's awful so I'll talk about my wildlife photography at first. So, you know, I'm doing this project at the moment where I'm photographing Exmoor ponies or ponies from Britain, you know, pony breeds. And I think they're a fantastic subject. They're docile, they sit around and you can just find a herd in nice light and just make the best of it. You can take fantastic images very easily. But at the moment, like the last two weekends, I've been down in Exmoor trying to get images and I can't see the wood for the trees. I just don't know what to take. And, you know, I've got this pressure of this exhibition coming up in August bank holiday I've been meant to be building my photos for it, and I just haven't had a chance. I just can't take a good photo, or at least a photo I'd like to put on the wall. So then, you know, how do I get over this artist? Is it like a striker rock? who can't find the net? You have to just keep trying. You just, and yeah, you just keep it, it keeps coming. Shooting, as long as you're yeah. in the right opportunity, as long as you're getting the chances, you'll get well, you'll get there. Exactly. In the end. You just if keep... you won't get the chances, I'd be worried. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. You just got to keep putting yourself out there. And the best way I found it, because also I've had a bit of creative block with my street photography recently, I just can't can't seem to take a picture it's just maybe go photograph something else so and then this takes me back to photographing people 
Now I've got this fantastic little thing I'm doing, which I previously mentioned, which is photographing all those who mean a lot to me, matter to me, who have you know contributed to my life to this point. And it's a fantastic excuse because every person you have to think about how to photograph them, what you want to include, why the personalities, how they can be directed. Yeah, exactly. Like some people love it. So our friend Dan, who we mentioned at the start, that was my next question. (laughs) Yeah, he 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 bloody loved it. So he was in there getting his photo taken. It was very easy. But then my housemate Letty, she's not so keen. She's very nervous about Mm. in front of a camera. And you know, I think that's fair enough. Not everyone likes having a photo taken. My younger brother's flat out refused. I'm trying to, you know, I want him in his pizza outfit, but he's really playing hard to get, trying to coax him in with beers and stuff. Uh, <laughs> There's nothing that will loosen, you know, yeah, exactly. social ties than, a, than yeah, exactly. a good beer, mate. He's got his pizza party on Friday. I've got that as my attack time. I'm going to try and get him then. So yeah, it's just change it up, photograph something else, look at other people's styles. Maybe try and photograph something you wouldn't normally photograph. And I find that really helps. It helps you sort of learn new techniques. And I think that's the best way around it. What you're describing here sounds like a visual memory box of sorts. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, I think once you photograph something in a particular way and you've consciously done it, and I don't necessarily mean accidentally take a photo. I think when you start photography, you you snap everything and sometimes you get a really good photo you love, but you don't quite understand why you got it. Once you consciously go out and take a photo and know how that photo's been taken, or learn how that photo's been taken, then you can recall that, and then you can put that into new new situations. Mm. And that's really rewarding, actually. You've done a shoot with your mum, I believe, as well. How was that? Oh, I'm getting there. So I was oh, it's not happened so yet, la- sorry. It's not happened yet. So last time we chatted, I was going to go photograph my mum, and it wasn't the right time to have a photo taken, which is absolutely <laughs> fine. You know, she's a matriarch. But I photographed my dad the other day. And oh, amazing. got some nice images of him. He's another one who enjoys being in front of a camera. So it was very <laughs> That's where you get it from, Yeah, it? <laughs> that's where I get it from. It was very easy. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> I want to finish this topic by talking about how photography specifically helps your mental health on a day-to-day basis, Will. So how does it provide that balance for you in life? Yeah, so I think actually it's a great thing to talk about is my first real job is, you know, I didn't find it fulfilling, I didn't enjoy it. And this is when my photography really took off, was because I was looking for that balance in life. You know, you know, spending nine to five doing something you don't necessarily enjoy, kind of is a bit tough. So then suddenly, you know, I had balanced it out with things I wanted to enjoy. I didn't necessarily want to get drunk the whole time, which, you know, it's quite easy to do in London. So yeah, photography was really that balancing weight ballast i don't know mm. i don't know what you call it it's a balancing act yeah balancing act yeah, yeah. yeah. so you know if, if i got how many hours of good photography in a week for taking images i enjoyed you know it made everything else more bearable has it helped give you an identity and also have you also thought about the fact that people might see you only as a photographer so lots of people ask you're a professional photographer, aren't you? Well, I go, no. So I think... <laughs> <laughs> you act and sound like a professional Exactly, act and sound, but actually I'm a professional scientist. Like I act like, sound like a professional podcaster. <laughs> but you are one. <laughs> Take the compliment. So yeah, so now I'm a professional scientist who takes photos also professionally. So yeah, so the identity is there. It does shape who I am. But actually, interestingly, I think it's, it's helped me learn more about myself rather mm. than, you know, directing others to take an opinion of me. Because you really learn what you like photographing, what you like spending time doing when you've got a camera. And that is things like being outside. I love photographing outside. I love photographing people. And actually, this is one of the funny things, is when I'm photographing, if I go out with someone, unless I've specifically gone to photograph them, 
the pictures don't matter anymore. Suddenly it's very much more spending time with the person. Mm. So I definitely think it's taught me a lot about myself opposed to just what others perceive mm. me as. I'd Have you say. found out what you're capable of too? Kind of going back to that perseverance you did with the two weeks for a shoot. Not yet. I mean, there's still so many boundaries I'm still breaking down. Like, oh okay. my God. So particularly when photographing people. And this is something I, this is another, again, another reason I'm, I've been photographing all my friends and family is to normalize photographing people and build up confidence in doing it. You know, you have these boundaries in photography, but sometimes you don't do something because you're not confident. You don't have you know, faith in yourself. And when I've been out in the Philippines photographing people, it's very much been as a fly on the wall type images. Very rarely have I gone in and photographed, you know, taken an image which is a window to someone's soul, mm. so to speak. And this is something, you know, I've got this next trip in the Philippines in September. This is something I'm really going to try and break the doors down on there. You know, I've got a lot more experience photographing people and I'm going to try it. So, no, I haven't found what I'm capable of yet. There's still so much to That's a good learn. thing in some ways. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I get so excited about it. Sometimes you kick yourself and you go, oh, why am I not achieving what I want to achieve? Why have I not hit all these targets I wanted to achieve? And then but your suddenly, journey's your journey, bro. Yeah, exactly. And I get so excited sometimes at, like, the amount I've still got to learn. Like, where I was five years ago in my photography, I was basically just starting out. And now, you know, in another five years, God knows where I'll be. I mean, it's so exciting. Your housemate has also now taken up photography <laughs> herself and has started taking pictures. So, like I think, like I have an effect with this podcast, you're having a ripple effect too with photography. How nice has that been for you? And I guess for her too, to be able to take up that hobby. Yeah, I love it. So actually, since since we last spoke, another one of my housemates has started taking oh, brilliant. more photos. So that's two, two in a row. <laughs> that's two of three housemates now. So the two who are are Ella and Letty. Letty bought a film camera and has really got into it. Loves taking her images, taking her photos. I get teased for calling them images. I just call them photos. <laughs> At least I don't call them clicks. So yeah, so she's at, she's she always say we went camping last weekend. And she bought a film camera and she was out taking photos, really taking an interest in it, trying to learn, asking questions. And I find that really encouraging. Like one of the things I really love doing is teaching people or sort of helping people learn. Sounds really cliche, but actually it's really good fun. And so when, you know, when Letty asks about the stuff, she wants to go out, she wants to take photos, she wants, you know, she's asking about shutter speed and all this stuff. It's really nice. And like she got her first few roles developed and I was completely blown away at, how good they were. I was really impressed with her. Like, my first few roles of film were terrible, but hers were great. And then Ella, you know, she has this old digital... It's not an old digital camera, but sort of... She had this digital camera she's had for a few years and has been taking photos on. And she was thinking of selling it. And she was thinking, oh, I want to get a film camera, which I can manipulate manually to take the images I want. And I was like, well, before you go spending, you know, a fair sum of money on a decent quality one, you can get an old film lens and stick it on your DSLR. So we did that, and... She's literally running with it. She loves it. We've been out for a few days shooting. And yeah, it's really nice to see. Again, she's learning. I've taken her out for a few lessons, like teaching her about lighting, aperture, shutter speed, perspective. Really, because the camera does it all. It's just, you know, perspective. Point and click. Yeah, it really is. You just have to focus. And yeah, so it's fantastic. I love it. I absolutely mm. love it. It's so rewarding. Let's reflect then on this photography journey. So, A, what has been your proudest achievement or best image or click, I should say, (laughs) along this journey? And what has it taught you about yourself? Interesting, which has been my favourite photo. You know, it comes and goes. So the photo which has probably done best is I got shortlisted or commended in British Photography Awards for a photo I took on the underground, which I think is a cool photo. I do like it, but it's not the photo I enjoy most. 
I think at the moment, the photo I'm enjoying most is one I've just, so as you know, I just got back from Nepal. I spent three weeks in Nepal photographing one of my brother's latest exhibition, expeditions, not exhibitions. We were up Kalabatar, which is this mountain in the Kumbu Valley next, next to Everest at about 5,600 meters. And we'd up there photographing sunset, getting some images, whatever. And we were hiking down, it was dark. And you could just see the faint outline of the hills, of the mountains, sorry, in the background. And I stopped Rupert and took his photo. So I illuminated him with a head torch and took his portrait. And at the moment, that's probably one of my favourite photos because what it represents. It was my first adventure. I've been meaning to go on an adventure with my brother. In the last few years, we've been working kind of partnership. I take his photos. He does BZ Outdoorsman. And this is the first time we went on an expedition together. And that photo sort of symbolises that sort of adventurous side. So at the moment, that's the photo I'm loving most. But then there's so many. There's, you know, in my early days, there's ones of deer I just adored. The bluebell photo. I still look at that and think, you know, that's two weeks of hard work. And I love it. Yeah, and I'm still excited for the photos I've yet to take. It's a very defining moment. Is What was the second part of the question? What has it taught you about yourself? Do you know what? Weirdly, so I think, as you'd probably agree... I probably come across most of the time quite a confident person, quite outspoken, quite loud. Not as loud as me, so not I, never, as loud I would as never you. call yeah. you loud. Probably quite quiet, <laughs> Any barometer to me is a <laughs> bit of a comparison, mate. Um, but actually, what it, it's done weirdly is it's highlighted all the elements of life or my character, which actually I struggle with. And it's actually the interactions with people I really, really struggle with. You know, being out, like I've mentioned already, being out in the woods, being out in the fields, photographing wildlife is very easy. You don't Ash have element. Yeah. 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 But then photographing, and this is why I'm putting so much effort into photographing people, is to build that, build that community, be able to communicate well, get people at ease. Yeah, so it's funny. Yeah, it's helping me grow as a person as well, 100%. And it's given me a lot of confidence. I think for a lot of people, if you spend your life working a nine-to-five you don't like, and you don't have a hobby you love and you know put a lot of time in and reap the rewards of becoming good at it and I th- actually I think everyone needs to have a hobby which they just love and it's always a bit funny when someone doesn't have a hobby actually and I think having photography which I enjoy and I feel I've got to a point where I'm proud of the photos I can take has given me so much confidence in myself something that actually you know having a PhD doesn't do it's a really weird one so yeah it's taught me a lot about my insecurities and it's given me a lot of confidence we've talked all about will the photographer and the scientist a little bit i want to go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey will so i ask all my special guests this question first as you will know walk me through early life teenage years and looking back were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Will we meet here? So I, I have a funny bit I'll get to, but I'll build into it. So you've got to set the context. It's a strong start. <laughs> I'd say I'm one of the lucky ones. I've definitely been able to manage my mental health. I've never reached the point where I would say with confidence that I've suffered with mental illness. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to differentiate too. I think everyone manages their mental health in different ways. And, and everyone I, has a mental health. Everyone has a mental health. And I think, yeah, crucial to differentiate too, but not everyone suffers from mental illness. That's, mm-hmm. you know, one end of a spectrum. 
So yeah, I, th I definitely think it's a big balancing act. Early life was parents went for a divorce at five, I'd probably say as a big part of it. But I was a bit too young to really get scathed by that. I floated through it, you know, parents lived apart and that was about it. I lived with my mum. You know, I always had my two brothers as very, very close with. Like, we are inseparable. Do you think that's a part of the reason? Yeah, 100%. Mm. You know, mum was always out working, you know, trying to support us, which is fantastic. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with my brothers, misbehaving at home like god we would we'd tear the house up you know the times when we'd <laughs> mum was away we'd light the agent cans on fire down this sort of one alley i hope you might make listen to this mate <laughs> yeah, she, well she knows she's gorgeous <laughs> okay. doing it and uh, it's not breaking news to her <laughs> yeah we, we're in the middle of chichester middle of a, a city we'd shoot these deodorant cans which had a firelight pine and they'd explode and we had a three-story house and these flames would go up to the top of his house so we get up all sorts of mischief, we'd always get told off together, we'd always tease each other, bully each other, and that was about life all the way through to about 16, 17, 18. So I don't think I'll talk about it, it's a little bit too mischievous to really include, and I don't necessarily want my mum or dad <laughs> hearing it, so... Uh, we'll leave it, you were a rascal. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. I think I always managed it pretty well. There's never a point in my early life where I struggled with it, and it was interesting, we had... In year eight, we had one of our schoolmates kill themselves because he was severely depressed. And it's mental to think that a 13-year-old can do that. And I didn't understand why it happened. You know, you, you think you do, but you don't really when you're that age. And it's a tough one. And of course, there have been times in life where I would say I've been miserable. I wouldn't necessarily say it's depression, anxiety, anything like that I'd say it's always been situational and I think this is key in differentiating again mental health and mental illness is if you're in a situation which is causing you misery and you can do something about it I personally feel that that's not chronic depression there's a difference between sadness and depression yeah 100% and I mean and like really deep sadness misery I'd call it and there, there have been times in life with that but there's always been triggered by something you know either family disputes or you know relationships or sort of, you know a terrible job you didn't find fulfilling and you felt trapped in now, you know once you go through the process of eliminating certain elements which might correct that suddenly you find actually stuff gets better and you know I, I went through got a dark patch before covid interestingly for a number of reasons and you know I went, I went through a process you know I was spending a lot of time abroad actually you know which is a fantastic opportunity I spent my job, I've spent a year abroad in the Philippines, Brazil, Argentina, Hong Kong, all these fun places. You know, I'm going to Philippines again. I'm meant to be going to Ghana or Gambia at some point as well. That took a toll on a lot of relationships I had at the time. Mm. And my commitment at this point in life was to work and actually to photography. And I had a lot of ideas of where I wanted to take photography. And, you know, it was impacting other, other things. And those things were then making me miserable. So I set about correcting all that trying to get these things straight in my life up. And then lockdown happened. And actually, weirdly, while for a lot of people it was a bad thing, for me it was really a blessing in disguise. And I hate, in many ways I hate to admit that, but it helped me a lot. I managed to live with my older brother, so someone who I get, incredibly get, on, get on incredibly well with. My grandma and grandpa had died just previous to COVID, so their house was empty. So we just shifted into this house still set up as the grandparents house so it still felt like home and I lived there and basically I spent my time doing data analysis on my PhD and going into the fields and photographing and it gave me the distraction escapism we spoke about earlier in photography it gave me a focus like I'd never focused before 
a drive. All I was doing was learning about data analysis, actually just learning in general, learning about photography, learning mm. about my PhD, learning about my subject. And it was a complete sort of removal of a situation which was making me miserable into something which was actually making me quite happy. And funnily enough, it's only, it's only now, three years on from that start of lockdown, three years, three months, whatever it is, that actually I realised how bad that situation hit me, how much it affected me. And really, it's only in the last year, six months, since Christmas this year, I'd say, that I've actually managed to recover from all the labour effects of that sort of bout of misery. Mm. Did it and, feel like a reset button? Yeah, it did. Yeah, 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 completely. It's like walking out of one room and into another. Suddenly, my environment changed, my people changed, my activities changed. Everything was completely different. And funny enough, I knew something had to change in life during this that point, pre-lockdown, that sort of year, was because when I was going away with work to the Philippines, to Borneo, wherever, it was a relief. You know, I could, I, it was complete escapism. I'd go away for a month, two months, two weeks. Out of sight, out of mind. Out of sight, out of mind. And I didn't have to worry about anything. And I think those were the trigger points that made me think I had to change something. And so... Post lockdown, post for two years of COVID, I've come back to London. Environments changed, situations changed. Living in a new part of London, work's changed to some extent. I'm still working in the same place, but the project has evolved. It's a completely different life. It's a completely separate. If you were to compare me now to then, it's very different. And I'd say photography has been the thing which has got me through all that and helped me manage my mental health. You say there, managing it and one thing that you were keen to talk about when we spoke off air was managing the waves of life and how you can deal with perhaps a heavy wave that comes onto your shores. So when you catch yourself or have caught yourself in a particular wave, how have you gone about riding it out properly? Yeah, waves oscillates, you go up and down in mood, don't you? And you can definitely start to see, you know, you go through peaks in life where everything's fantastic and then suddenly something will change and you start seeing that actually things are going downhill, whether that's too much stress at work, maybe it's not getting out with a camera, maybe that's, you know, friendships going sour or you're not getting the same right fulfilment out of it. You know, you can always step out with the camera I think nothing is more important than your happiness or your individual happiness, unless gaining that happiness upsets someone else or hurts someone else. And I don't mean that necessarily like telling someone, you know, you can't go for drinks that evening or whatever. I mean like malicious activity. So I'm always a big advocate of putting work down. And I, jo I do joke, but actually there is some seriousness to this is Every day is a half day if you just get up and leave. And if life's getting really tough, you kind of, you can apply that to life. You know, if life's getting really tough, just get up and go do something. If I step up and go out with the camera, suddenly everything's more manageable. And it does help me reflect on, on stuff because all you have to think about is taking a photo. Sometimes you don't even take a photo, you just go out and enjoy the location, enjoy the light, enjoy the potential of finding a photo, but you never do, or you might not. And it is, it's, it's when you start noticing things are going downhill, you feel it. So then you have to identify what's happening. But, you know, a good way of doing that, good way of mulling over or reflecting on life is going out with camera. And I love it. I love it, love it, love it, love it. Mm. You spoke there about moving to London. So how did you initially adjust to that from a mental health perspective? Yeah, I was incredibly nervous about it. And I think 
both my housemates were too, who I lived with previously, I think we were all a bit concerned about it because we had lived in paradise down in Chichester, essentially. We all had our own little paradises. But I think we were ready to move back and the pull of having a social life again, living with each other was very exciting. So it was a bit of a leap into the dark. We knew we were giving up a lot of freedom. I would be giving up specifically moving to this part of London I'm now currently in, which is Hackney. I was basically giving up wildlife photography for a short term. Yeah, Vicky Park doesn't have the same uh, attractions. No, it doesn't, as, as Richmond. Because <laughs> yeah. Richmond's got badgers, it's got rabbits, yeah. it's got deer, it's got foxes. Actually, Victoria Park's got foxes, but they're not quite as stunning as the ones in Richmond Park. Which Park got. I'm sure their manes aren't as uh, yeah. l- luscious. <laughs> their tails aren't so bushy. <laughs> yeah. So I knew I was giving that up. But then actually, my aims of what I wanted to achieve from photography had changed. I knew I would need to focus on humans more. <laughs> talking like a biologist um, <laughs> on people so actually you know to reach that goal of photographing more people telling more stories incorporating my photography more of my career my research should I say not my career because my career is both I knew I had to photograph more people so it would force me to focus on that which it has so from a mental health perspective moving to London was a step in the dark but I knew it needed to happen and I would have to find coping mechanisms and focusing on photographing people has been one of those coping mechanisms like interestingly this week so last week last couple of weeks i've been fantastic been going out photographing people a lot and i've been loving it you've probably seen from my stories that mm. there's lots of pictures of people and this week actually i've had a lull and up until this afternoon where i sent i sent out a flurry of texts and got a flurry of returns i didn't really have anything booked in and i was like god i need to pull my finger out i need to get out and set this up so i've got stuff to look forward to and unwind to so yeah i knew things had to change but it was an essential way of growing let's reflect now on this mental health journey will so what has it taught you about yourself and if you could go back and talk to the perhaps teenage will who was just being told that he couldn't be a wildlife cameraman by that teacher at parents evening or the will was coming back from his erasmus year in Deut- not Deutschland, Netherlands, I should say. In Netherlands. In Netherlands. Or the will about to fully embark on that photography career for real. What would you say to him, knowing what you do now? So I wouldn't give him any advice on how to live, because I think all the mistakes are made. And I don't regret anything. I literally don't regret anything. <laughs> I regret nothing! Uh, yeah, exactly. It's all been so much fun. You I know. I got that quote from a Fairly Old Parents episode. <laughs> <laughs> But I probably would just say pick up a camera earlier. That's what I would have done. Uh, you know, I don't know what it was about going through university and stuff which made me so nervous about fully indulging in it. But I should have just done it earlier, and it would have changed my life. I think. But you know, I'm, I'm playing catch up now. <laughs> We've come to our final topic of conversation, Will, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Yeah, good. Do you know what? Funny enough, in the last six months, it's been better than for a long time. Like, really fantastic. You know, I haven't looked back at anything. And like like we said before, you see these peaks and troughs coming. I've been really good at controlling the troughs. And yeah, I love life. And I think it comes to... I'm feeling sharp, focused, determined. I know where I'm headed. Yeah, I'm loving life. I absolutely love it. Excellent, mate. And what mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with? And how do they affect you in your day-to-day life, if so? 
So I wouldn't say I live with any. Nothing diagnosed. I think it's nothing outside of a normal of just, you know, having these bouts of just struggling sometimes versus, you know, apparent ease of life. And sometimes it's even on a daily cycle. Like sometimes I wake up in the morning feeling miserable, but by the time I'm home, I'm absolutely great. And I think that's just mental health. It's just life. Yeah, Yeah, that's just life. And you've got to recognise that. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I think the first time I genuinely experienced things that would make me feel I needed to manage my mental health better were probably end of university. So I was, a, I was an adult by then, 22, 23. That's really the first time and I was like, wow, okay got to start thinking about this stuff otherwise up until then life had been a breeze apart from like you know heartbreak from breakups or like arguments with friends or like you know family disputes like that had been easy and tell me about that first conversation then you had with someone about your mental health so who was it with what did you say and did it feel like on the one hand a big burden or a big weight had been lifted off your shoulders or on the other did it feel like something quite easy insignificant and normal to do I would say talking about your mental health is always challenging. Talking about mental health is easy. I think being honest is very tough. Mm. And I think it's how far you want to go about honesty, which is really the big thing. So the first conversation I had with someone was easy. Yeah, because, you know, you're not honest about it. I think that's (laughs) a big thing. And I think sometimes you don't want to be honest. Sometimes you do. But yeah, I, I wouldn't know. I don't know if it's always... A good thing I think and I think it is but I definitely am coming to the uh, idea that you know mental illness actually should be treated as sort of more of an infectious disease I would say if you haven't got the coping mechanisms in place and you are not good at managing your mental health if you expose yourself to it I think you can quickly go downhill mm. and I think you really need to have a lot of time grounding yourself and spending time with people who enable you to ground yourself and have self-awareness and have self-awareness otherwise you quickly decline Mm. because it is all encompassing what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so it could be things people say it could be a sound a sensation social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet it's people 100% people I'd say almost every single problem in life stems from people And I know that because I cause a lot of issues for a lot of people. (laughs) I think, you know, if a TV doesn't cause issues on its own, it has to be someone there dropping it or watching something (laughs) annoying on it. That's not something which really triggers your mental health. I think it's breakdown in relationships, breakdown in communication. And I do genuinely think communication, speaking, and I think this actually comes back up to the conversation about being honest about mental health. Is it a good thing? I think is you've got to communicate. Mm. And I think that's when things break down is misunderstanding, lack of communication. And if you're clear, articulate in the way you express your thoughts and emotions, I think then actually mental health you can, you know, can maintain quite good. And on the flip side, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? I genuinely think the best way to improve, well, I find the best way to improve my mental health or how I'm feeling at any one point, and this is through, you know, times at work which have been particularly tough or relationship breakdowns, is just talking to your friends, talking to your friends and family, people who care about you, you care about and who matter, 
I think is the best treatment anecdote an antidote for <laughs> feeling down. Yeah, God, it grounds you. Just going and having a conversation with someone about anything just reminds you actually there's other stuff in the world. And actually just getting out for a walk and reminding yourself that, you know, the world goes on. And I think, again, goes back to every day is a half day if you get up and leave. It's like if work's getting you down, if something's getting you down and upsetting you, like the world will continue without it. It doesn't matter. And I think that's quite a grounding idea to keep going in your head because otherwise everything it's all-encompassing. Everything will just get you down constantly. Mm. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. I love picture books. <laughs> spot, love, spot the dog? <laughs> yeah, I love, I love picture books. So at the moment, I've got this fantastic series. I wouldn't say I'm reading because I just look at the pictures called... Uh, Portraits of Humanity, or Portrait of Humanity. Uh, it's a fantastic series by Hoxton Mini Press, and it's just fantastic pictures of people. Uh, very emotive, some of them, very candid, some of them very, just sort of interesting, comical, or whatever. And it's just a fantastic selection of photos of people, and I just spend ages looking at Like, last few mornings, I wake up, I have my coffee, and I, I look at a few photos from that, and I think that's you know reminds you there's so much out there to see it reminds me to get out my camera it reminds me that actually you know maybe my regression analysis at work doesn't matter so much <laughs> it's all this stuff and um, as a final question then mate what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it I think it is to normalise it. I think both for that person listening to it, listening to the person speaking, and the person who actually is doing the speaking. And I think this actually goes back to what I said earlier about one of the best ways I find of, you know, improving my mental health is going and talking to someone. Because it reminds you, you know, and it's very cliche, you hear it a lot, that you're not alone. And it's not necessarily that you're not alone in suffering with mental health. It's just that you're not on your own. I think it's very you, life can be very lonely sometimes. Reminding yourself that you've got people that care about you is fantastic. So yeah, and I, you know, I'd say I'm in a very privileged position where I've got some fantastic friends and family who I can unload to, and you know, I think they'd always be there if I had any issue I needed to talk about. Actually, I know they have been, so it's fantastic. And on that note, William Jones Warner, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to the legend that is William Jones Warner for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him and talk about his mental health for the first time. I'll put a link to where you can follow all of Will's photography, social media channels and his website where you can commission him in the show notes as usual. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Please, if you can, give us a rating and a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and help us out with those glorious algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. That is on our link tree across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.